This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. As the deer longs for flowing streams, so my soul longs for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. When shall I come and behold the face of God? Deep calls to deep at the thunder of your cataracts. All your waves and your billows have gone over me. God of wonder and glory, this world around us is awesome. You created it. You continue to hold it together, even as we threaten to tear it apart. God of justice and righteousness, to you we look for the truth. You are the ultimate judge. Your wisdom cuts through the lies. God of grace and mercy, the love you have shown us in Jesus is more than we deserve. Your arms are open wide like a waiting father for his prodigal children, ready to welcome and restore. We come to you just now thirsting for your living water, knowing that you will guide us to the streams of your wonder and glory, your justice and righteousness, your grace and mercy, that we may drink and be satisfied. And so we offer you our praise. Oh, oh, oh. 
grace and peace to you, and welcome to the First Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, both those of us gathered here in this sanctuary and also everyone worshiping in other locations. We are glad and grateful to gather together in the name of our Lord, and because it is in the name of our Lord that we have gathered, our word of welcome is one that is extended with no qualifying adjectives at all attached to it. We greet one another in the name of Christ, and so that means that all are welcome here at First Church. We would be very delighted if you would join us for a time of fellowship at the conclusion of this service in Old Buttonwood Hall, which is just out this door to my right, down a short ramp, and there you will find some light refreshments prepared by our deacons and a cup of coffee or lemonade, but most importantly, the opportunity to engage deeply with one another in our common life together. I would also like to highlight that we would like for you to please sign the friendship pad that is located on your pew, even if you are sitting on a pew by yourself. This is our only means of contact tracing in the event that we would need to let you know about anything, so please do sign in on those friendship pads and send them down the pew and back again if, you, if there's someone else on your pew, and that will enable us to greet one another by name at the conclusion of this service. There are fewer opportunities to gather in the summertime, but nonetheless, there are opportunities to gather, and so I would just like to highlight that if you are a TNT, a 20 or a 30, uh, and you'd like to go to the ball game coming up on Friday the 1st, please let Annie Lecluse hear from you so that she can include you in that. And this one we do need an RSVP on because we buy the tickets in advance, so please do uh, let us know if you'd like to participate in that if you are a TNT. And everybody else, just keep looking at the church website. There you will find opportunities to to be together and opportunities to engage in the life of faith, and I commend them all to your attention. So with these things noted, let us continue our worship now with our confession of sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In humility and faith, let us confess our sin to God. Eternal God, while we know you fully in the person of Jesus Christ, so much of what we take as faith seems to us a mystery. We read the stories of how you have intervened in the lives of your people for good, and yet, we fail to see such interventions in our own. We read how demons were cast out in the name of Jesus Christ, and yet the demons in our own communities seem intractable, unable to be exercised from our city, our nation, and the world. Forgive our lack of faith in your redeeming power. Help us once more to see the ways that you are working, even now, for the healing of the world. And seeing, let us believe.
good news of God's love for us, not in the earthquake, not in the storms, not in the mighty deeds, but in the silence, in the gentle touch, in the quiet rain. God says again, you are my beloved, I love you. Believe the promise of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. Our first scripture lesson this morning comes to us from 1 Kings in the 19th chapter. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid. He got up and fled for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. He left his servant there. He got up and ate and drank. Then he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. At that place he came to a cave and spent the night there. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? He answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the Israelites have forsaken your covenant thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. He said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now there was a great wind, so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of sheer silence. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Then there came a voice to him that said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. Then the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. Our second reading comes to us from the letter to the Galatians. In the third chapter, starting at the 23rd verse. Now before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. Therefore, the law was our disciplinarian until Christ came so that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer subject to a disciplinarian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. 
As many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male or female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. We are always grateful for the leadership of our musicians in worship, but today we are particularly grateful for the leadership of Fran Kramer standing in for Andrew as he enjoys a well-deserved day of vacation. We look forward to having Andrew back with us next week, and we are grateful for Fran for this week. Our gospel lesson comes to us from the 8th chapter of Luke. We begin at the 26th verse and continue through the 39th. Continue to listen for the word of God to us this day. Then they arrived at the region of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. As he stepped out on shore, a man from the city who had demons met him. For a long time he had not worn any clothes, and he did not live in a house but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him, shouting, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg of you, do not torment me. For Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the wilds. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? He said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. They begged him not to order them to go back into the abyss. Now there on the hillside, a large herd of swine was feeding, and the demons begged Jesus to let them into these, so he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd stampeded down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When the swine herds saw what had happened, they ran off and told it in the city and in the country. Then people came out to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had been kept gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they became frightened. Those who had seen it told them how the one who had been possessed by demons had been healed. Then the whole throng of people of the surrounding region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got in the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. So he went away, proclaiming throughout the city how much Jesus had done for him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Almighty, eternal God, grant now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts may be acceptable, even pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, there is just nothing quite like a demon possession to make you sit up and take notice. I wonder if perhaps you have seen one. Andrew and I were walking along 21st Street to get lunch some time ago when a man started yelling obscenities and making rude gestures in our general direction. Now that alone does not make it qualify as a demon possession. If we assumed everyone who shouted obscenities and made obscene gestures in Philadelphia is possessed by demons, exorcism would be a full-time job. But he was on the other side of the street making his show over there, yelling and screaming at people, and a septibus pulled between us and we just kept on walking because we could. And as I thought about this story, it struck me that this is some of what separates us from understanding this biblical text. How very easy it is for us, perhaps, just to keep on walking, to move away. But it doesn't change the fact that there are troubled people among us, as deeply troubled now as they were a couple thousand years ago. And our relative insulation against them, mental and physical, only serves to highlight further the divisions that exist between whole and not quite whole. And that division is still there, perhaps even worse. Furthermore, we are separated from this story by yet another layer of insulation. We are children of the scientific age. We understand germ theory, and we have a diagnostic and statistical manual, if we want one, that will give us words to describe some things that we might have interpreted in the past as demon possession, words like paranoid schizophrenia, among others. We don't think about physical ailments quite the same way that folks did in Jesus' time. But that doesn't make the fact of demon possession any less real, any less horrible. Whatever it is, whether it's mental illness or uncontrollable gun violence, we just use different words to describe it. So maybe that's a question we should consider for a moment. What is demon possession? Is it what we encounter in C.S. Lewis's classic, The Screwtape Letters, which recounts a senior demon directing the junior demons to wreak havoc in the world, all the while standing back in glee while the demonic forces oppress and destroy God's good creation? Is that what we perceive of? Or do we perhaps psychologize it, as I suggested in the introduction? And certainly some of us do see it in both of those ways. But I would caution us against getting too attached to just one 
understanding. It is sufficient to acknowledge that there are destructive forces at work in this world with catastrophic consequences. If we can go to that place, that will give us enough to step into this tale with some chance of understanding it. Because at its heart, this is an age-old story. We can so easily change the names and the circumstances in it and bring it right up to the modern day. Sure, it is easy to apply a psychological interpretation or a sociological interpretation to the biblical issue of demon possession. It's easy and, frankly, it's tempting but the risk we run is that we can so conceptualize the matter that it can no longer speak to us in our lives today. So let's not do that. The biblical concept of demon possession is more than just superstitious people assigning theological meaning to circumstances in life. The biblical witness is clear that demon possession, as we encounter it in our text this morning, is a pitched battle between the forces of chaos and evil that threaten to overwhelm us on the one hand and wholeness and the power of God on the other hand. Now, is that a way we might relate to modern life? Perhaps so. As long as we do not stay so comfortably insulated against any interpretation that flirts with the phantasmagoric and risk missing the significance of this text. Because it is clear that for the gospel writers, the demonic is the result of sin. And not just little sins that we can count off on our fingers and toes, but the great global concept of sin, wherein we live in a broken creation, crying out for God's redemption. When we understand sin that way, not as the little things we can count, but in a, in a global overarching way, we understand that we are all under the weight of sin. Or perhaps I can make this a little clearer with the immortal words of one of my spicier college and, uh, excuse me, colleagues and seminary classmates who once looked a group of us dead in the eye and said, what makes you think you ain't got demons? What makes you think you ain't got demons? Have you ever encountered something that was so completely unresponsive to reason and rationale that it cannot be described as anything other than demonic. I vividly, vividly remember a conversation I had with a friend of mine probably 25 years ago. This woman was struggling with her brother. She had been struggling with him for many, many years by that point because he wouldn't and probably couldn't change course. In her words, he is so hard-headed he just can't see that he is going to self-destruct. He's already serving five to ten, and he's, all, and he's in a gang in prison. I don't know how this will ever end. 
for another time when a parent approached me asking for prayer because he said, I am so scared on my son's behalf because of his addiction that I have been reduced to bargaining with God. I am 49 years old and I am bargaining with God like I'm a 12-year-old who doesn't want his mother to find out that he broke the cookie jar. Will you please pray for me? And friends, I guess what I'm saying at this point is that no matter how we might want to see it, it is clear that there are absolutely forces that are beyond our control. And it would be simplistic and dangerously easy to label anything that we don't understand or that scares us as demonic. I get that. But it would also be equally foolish and an irresponsible reading of this scripture text to stick our heads in the sand and to pretend that because we cannot define a thing that it doesn't exist. There are such things as evil and chaos, and oftentimes they are beyond our control. And when we realize that we can't control everything, this story has something to say to us. Through all the grim demonic choruses, the gospel speaks a word of hope, and salvation that is both wonderful and fearful at the same time. To the forces of chaos and evil personified in the demon possession of this man from Gerasa, the gospel says, your suffering is at an end. God is in control even of the darkest recesses of the psyche and is acting in the present tense to heal you. In his wonderful book, The Way of Jesus Christ, German theologian Jürgen Moltmann puts it this way, The Lordship of God drives out of creation the powers of destruction, which are demons and idols, and heals the created beings who have been damaged by them. If the kingdom of God is coming, as Jesus proclaimed, then salvation is coming as well. If salvation comes to the whole creation, then the health of all created beings is the result. The health of body and soul, of individual and community, human beings, and nature. Which I suppose reminds us that we shouldn't ever get so sophisticated that we forget to say that Jesus has the power to save. In Luke's version of the gospel, this story appears just after Jesus stills a pop-up storm on the Sea of Galilee. The disciples are cowering in fear against the powers of nature that threaten to overwhelm them, and they say to Jesus, We are perishing! Do you not care? As they cower, Jesus confronts the powers that threaten destruction and stills the sea and calms the storm. Now, just so we don't miss this, the sea is a powerful poetic motif in biblical literature. The sea is always more than just water. The sea represents everything that is fearful, chaotic, and demonic. In the creation story, God separates out the dry land from the sea, the waters above, 
and the sea below, setting out a place of order in the midst of chaos where humanity understands that even in an oftentimes chaotic universe, God is in charge, God is in control. And of course, in the creation story, that order lasts only a brief time before sin, sin enters in and begins unraveling the whole creation. So when Jesus stands up and calls out the forces of evil, whether he is stilling a storm or casting out demons, he is declaring God's reign, God's lordship over all of the powers of sin. That's the setup for the story of this healing. That's also what makes this healing, like all the healings, a story of the gospel in miniature. Because they are microcosms of the message that Jesus has the power to heal and to redeem. That God has the power always to restore and to make whole. And there's more. At the end of this chapter, and in the beginning of the next, in Luke's Gospel, Jesus sends out, get this, not the apostles, but the rank-and-file disciples, that's you and me, with the power to cast out demons themselves. And that, dear friends, is where this story gets really weird, and frankly, even more scary. Years ago, a neighbor of ours suffered a break-in during the night. A thief came through the back door of her house, walked through her home where she was sleeping upstairs, took her car keys from a ring by the door, went out the front door, stole her car, making enough noise to wake her up in the process. A few days later, when I got out of the car, the young woman, who I'd met only a few times before and didn't know well, was standing outside talking with some neighbors. And she approached me saying, do you know someone, or, or could you tell me someone who could bless my home? Because it just doesn't feel at all right there now. It hasn't felt right since the night that person broke into my home. Now, mind you, house blessings are not an unusual thing. They're not a prominent part of our tradition, but they are absolutely fine liturgically. But what I heard her asking me in the brief, a brief moment, and I was petrified by this fact, was that in fact what she wanted was for me to perform an exorcism on her house, which incidentally does not have a liturgy in our Book of Common Worship. But in time, I came to realize there was something much deeper to her request. I came to realize that what she was asking me was this. Can God restore my sense of security, my sense of safety, where chaos has broken into my life? Can God restore to me confidence where fear is threatening to overwhelm me? And the answer to that question is unequivocally yes. But perhaps in unexpected ways. That's what is happening when Jesus sends out the rank-and-file disciples 
with the power to cast out demons. And it would be patently impossible for me or for any other preacher or really any Christian to create a template of what it looks like for the rank and file disciples of Jesus to cast out demons. Because the truth of the matter is much of Christian discipleship, much of Christian life is something, simply something we're making up as we go, hopefully in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's not always easy to do. In fact, it usually isn't if we take it with any degree of seriousness. But that is our calling as Christians, to live out our discipleship in joyful response to the word of God that we have been saved, that we have met a God who offers us wholeness and redemption. I remember a story that I encountered many years ago in a book told by David Buttrick. He wrote, a few years ago, a multi-million dollar church was built in an eastern city, New England colonial, of course. The day of dedication had been set, but not all of the furnishings had arrived. So the, the chancel was empty. No pulpit or, or table, no tapestry for the back wall. When the worshipers gathered for the dedication, they found that someone had stuck into the building in the night and with a wide brush had painted in big black letters on the bare wall, Stop the killing. Feed the poor. Sincerely yours, Jesus Christ. Well, Buttrick concludes, do you sense our strange calling in a blasé world, in a world that will go along with anything for a full tank of gas and an IRA? Somehow, we are called to speak, to shake awake God's people with the words of Christ. That still remains the calling of the rank-and-file disciples sent out, expected to make some sort of difference in the world. And truly, truly, we are just making it all up as we go along. And not all of us are called to exercise demons in a way that is reminiscent of Jesus' dramatic casting out of the legion of demons. In fact, most of us won't because we aren't Jesus but we are his followers. Even when we feel our most flawed and broken, we are Jesus' followers. And I suspect that some of the time, we too find that the demons are legion. But that doesn't mean that we have nothing to do. We have a gospel promise to share, a promise of restoration and hope and always good news, remembering the promises that God has already kept. I have never forgotten an Easter sunny Sunday many, many years ago. In fact, I think I've told you about it once before. Uh, Services had concluded. I'd shaken hands with the Lord. I walked back to my office and found it open, and several members of the congregation huddled around a very small man who was disoriented 
Clearly, he was dehydrated and hungry, possessed by the demonic powers of thirst and hunger, and God only knows what else. He had, during the course of our Easter Sunday services, wandered into the church, and he needed, clearly, healing. And so the members of the congregation had gathered around him, and somebody had gone off and made some peanut butter crackers and brought them to him, and still another had gone into the fellowship hour and gotten a a cup of lemonade to to bring it in. And they were attending to him, And, and one member decided he would forego the Easter luncheon with his family, so he drove him to the hospital and waited with him until he was able to be seen by the doctor and then even waited so that he could take him to a shelter for the night so that he wouldn't be sleeping out on the streets. I know I've shared this story before. It means the world to me because it's as clear an evidence of the presence of Jesus Christ in our midst as as I can think of. But what strikes me the most about it and what takes my breath away is that in every church that I have served, including this one, some version of that story just keeps on taking place. And friends, that is as sure a sign of the casting out of demons as I can think of. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.
let us together proclaim our faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Through God's many gifts to us, we have our gifts to share. And so now we lift up our gifts to God for the glory and the service of God's kingdom.
eternal God. This world can seem overwhelming at times as we experience the realities and the challenges of the forces of chaos and evil. We give you thanks for your presence, your salvation. You're preventing the forces of evil from having the final word. And so we pray for a world that knows violence and war, drought and famine, greed and inequality, that we may bring your love to that world, your justice, your healing. We pray for a nation that believes it's divided, that we might remember our shared humanity. We lift up all who are impacted by gun violence, and we pray for our leaders. On this Juneteenth, we give you thanks for the gifts of freedom that we experience, and we pray that we continue to strive and to work to excise the demons of racism that continue to plague us. We pray for all those we know, including ourselves, who need your healing in body, mind, or soul, that your presence might be known in their lives and in our own lives. Lord, we know that when life seems hard, you get it because you chose to come and live with us, to experience life in this world, to share in the joys and the challenges, the pain and the love. And we know that you walk with us. We thank you for that and for hearing these our prayers and the prayer that you taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.
Now go in peace to love and serve the Lord, remembering always that the power that brings that peace comes always from the God who is committed to our wholeness, to our healing, and to all good. And now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and those you love and give you peace, both this day and forevermore. Amen. Thank you.